If you're a local government enthusiast who's looking for fresh conversations over a hot cup of morning coffee or tea or while you're driving or walking the dog, you do you. You're in the right place. Welcome to the Local Gov Cafe podcast, hosted by Susan Gardner and Ann Mitchell. This podcast is devoted to having conversations that matter, covering the full menu of municipal topics. You'll discover guests who bring insight and inspiration to the issues that drive and challenge communities. We'll be talking with leaders in policy, practice, consulting, and academia to put a spotlight on civic government and the people who make it all happen at the local level. Welcome back to the Local Gov Cafe. We're serving up another great episode and we're excited to have you with us. Anne, why don't you tell us what's on the menu today? Susan, I'm so excited that we have Wendy Landry in the cafe today. I've had the pleasure of sitting on the NOMA board, that's the Northwestern Ontario Municipal Association, for five years with Wendy. She's the mayor of the municipality of Shunya, which is located next to the city of Thunder Bay in Northern Ontario. Wendy is the first First Nations woman to be elected as a mayor in Ontario. And she recently was named Woman of Influence in Local Government by Municipal World. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, Wendy, your bio is so impressive. You've had a diverse career in both the private and public sector. And your advocacy work, I have to say, is really inspiring. Maybe you could share with us a little bit about how you got interested in politics and local government. You know, it's a great question, Susan. And I think I've come to the point, having been asked this question so many times, realizing that what I didn't realize was during my college, university and high school years, I was probably more political politically active than I thought I was. Because as I, I reflect and I look back, I was on student councils. I was holding positions in, and you don't think of those as political positions, but really they are. And they start to groom you. So I've been, I've been an advocate on many different levels for different areas. And how I got involved with municipal politics is more of a personal story. So in the municipality of Shunya, we're a rural community. I have six children. My children went to school to the Catholic school, so they were bused into the city of Thunder Bay. So they weren't getting to know the kids out in this area because majority of the kids in this area went to the public school in the municipality. So with my experience in working in, correct, in corrections, specifically with youth in police foundations and enforcement sector, I was on the community policing committee. And that's different than a police services board. It's a community board where you talk about safety and you do different events and initiatives to keep your community safe. So we were meeting once a month to talk about community safety. And that's how I started to get involved. I've always been a big volunteer. And then I said, well, this beautiful rec center we're meeting in, we're not using it. It's not being utilized. It literally had cobwebs, mothballs. And we were trying to figure out how in a rural community where we're really spread out and birds are like, acres apart sometimes from each other. How do we make our community more connected? What do we do to connect with each other? So I <clears throat> suggested to the group, if you want to connect with the community, you want to bring the community together, you go through the youth. And so I proposed a youth center in our, in our rec center. 
So I went to, I offered to do a presentation to council to ask if we could use the rec center and ask if they would donate portions like money, furniture and fixtures that would start us off in the youth center. So I prepared a presentation to the youth center. I had met with the CAO at the time to guide me because I'd never made a presentation or a deputation to council. And I went in front of council and I put together this beautiful presentation and I was turned down. The demographics at the time, you can understand, were not much different than we see now. We see a lot more younger demographics in our municipal councils now than we do back in 2008, 2009, 2007 when I was doing this. And there was a few of the councillors that were convinced it was going to be drugs, sex, and rock and roll there, right? (laughs) So I was going to create a menace more than a positive thing. So I went away really disheartened. And then I got together with a couple of my girlfriends and said, how do we do this? What do we do? And I started to apply for funding. So I applied for funding to federal funding to action, community action plan to keep the communities active. And I was successful at a $15,000 application. And then I applied to the OPP community fund, safety fund, and I was successful at $20,000. So now you can imagine that these two governing uh, bodies who are going to fund this program and this initiative are not going to give four moms this kind of money. So Mm. I had to go back to the municipality and ask and say, I now have $35,000 to start this youth center, but I need you on board. And so they gave it a chance. And that was in 2006, 2007. And it took off from there. We had community donations. At the time, not every house had a computer. So we had four computers donated. We had all kinds of TVs and games and furniture. And we created programming, much like what I was doing in the correctional field. And us moms, we volunteered every Friday night and every Wednesday night to supervise these youth. And it grew. And I'm super proud to say today that it's fully funded by the municipality. And we have staff, paid staff that are that are keeping that program going. And it's grown. So it's grown into everything from yoga for our aged community. It's gone into exercise, boxing, gardening groups. It's just took off. So oh my, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. It's, a, it's a fully functional rec center that has probably 10 to 15 different programs going on. And my experience in presenting to council and looking at the demographics there, I was so disheartened in the beginning that I felt that if I was going to be a positive influence on this community, the only way to affect change was to be at that table. So I decided to run for council and I was successful in running for council 2010. Boom. Oh, Wendy, that's amazing. That's true community work. That's truly, truly impressive. We're obviously going to get more into your work in local government, but you're also an extremely talented public speaker, and you've provided Indigenous 101 sessions to many corporations and groups. Could you share with us a bit more about that work and what you hope to achieve through it? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because I'm really, really proud of that work that I'm asked to do on a regular basis. So for 10 years, I taught history of Aboriginal Canadian relations at Confederation College. And I was part of the group that developed the curriculum for that, what I call a 101. And what I found was not only during my time at the college, but obviously up until today, was the need for that educational piece on the true history of our relationship with Indigenous people in Canada. And the demographics, like I referenced earlier, really demonstrated that local government, municipal government, and provincial government were not educated, um, the true education and the true history of Indigenous people in Canada. 
So as I started to sit on different boards and different committees and having conversations with municipalities, I, I came to light that this was something that was needed and I do still offer it for free service. I go in and present a 101 to municipalities. During COVID, I did a lot of them over virtually like we're doing today, but the 101, I believe that to to address racism, to address myths that are out there, to the way to work on all of the social issues that we have going on and the social and the attitudes towards our social issues is to educate. Education is the key. And at no fault of anyone that serves in our municipal councils, they didn't learn that in school. You win the war, you write the books, right? They didn't real they didn't learn that real history, the true history. And so I took my work and I tweaked it to have a municipal tone to it so that I can compare things like what how chief and council are governed compared to how mayor and council are governed and the differences between there and just the approach to how we're all trying to sustain our communities, grow our communities and show the commonalities between the two. But more importantly, the 101 educates people on the history. So really it's basic foundational learning that is cross Canada. So it's not specific to my Ojibwe nation or any of the other regions. That's like a 2.0 where you do regional training that's specific to the area that you're in. It's general. It's about the Indian Act. It's about residential schools. It's about all the things that we couldn't couldn't do as First Nations people under the Indian Act. The laws that were in place, the laws that our federal government put into place, people are often blown away by the laws that, first of all, we couldn't leave our reserves without identification or permission from government. We couldn't hold Crown Corporation jobs. We couldn't hire lawyers. We couldn't educate our own children. We couldn't go to post-secondary education. There are so many pieces of the Indian Act that are in law. Some have been changed, not all that I felt the need to share this with our municipal colleagues so that they had a better understanding of the social issues that have overflowed into our municipalities from our social issues and from our, our joint history of Canada and Indigenous relations. It's, it's really shocking, as you say, when, you know, it's not a history that was typically taught in schools to our generation, that's for sure. So it's really important work that you're doing. So tell us about being the first nation woman to be elected as a mayor in Ontario. What does that mean to you? And are there any added expectations? Thank you for that question, Susan. It's definitely not a stat, a, stat, a statistic that I sought after, right? It's something that, that was brought to my attention by a female chief in Ontario after 2014, when I was successful in running for mayor. And I should just back up for a quick second. In the decision to run for mayor, was was a family decision, first of all. But it was also, before it was a family decision, it was a decision made between me and other councillors. Because the leader at the time had a very old school, if you will, I'm trying to be respectful, old school way of running the community. And it wasn't taking us to the next level of modernization or improving, if you will, our community. And there was a real hard fist pounding way of doing things. So between counselors and myself, we decided someone has to run against this 25-year incumbent in order to make change. And there's a hesitation because when you run for mayor, you're either in or you're out. As a mm -hmm. counselor, you have more opportunities to stay in. So my fellow counselors were long-serving counselors. So I said, I have a full-time job. I, if I lose, but I'm happy to run. 
And so I talked to my husband and my family and uh, they encouraged me. They were supportive. And so I decided to run. The idea that, of me being First Nations and running for municipal council as a mayor or being the first First Nations woman to be elected in the province of Ontario never even crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when people meet me, they don't they don't immediately um, know that I'm First Nations. I've been mistaken for Greece, Greek, Portuguese, Italian, other nationalities. I don't present First Nations as many of my cousins do, the stereotypical look, if you will. So when I was campaigning, I started in January that year campaigning, going door to door, and happy to say that I don't. I knocked on almost pretty much every door in the municipality. And then for the first time in my life, I was at the receiving end of racism, partly because the person I was running against, her team was using that against me and actually empowered me (laughs) to to give her even more. (laughs) And I, it was funny because I went to this one house and there was a humongous sign across the front lawn for my, my, my opponent, the incumbent. And I knocked on this fellow's door. I left my car running. It was a January, cold January evening. And he said, did you see the sign on my driveway? I introduced myself and he said, did you see the sign on my front lawn? I said, yes, sir, I did. I said, but I just wanted to introduce myself to show you that you do have a choice. And I wanted to, you know, give a minute to just chat with you so that you can say that you met me. And he goes, well, you're an Indian. Why would I vote for you? Mm. And I said, I understand that I'm First Nations. I said, but I don't want you to fear that. That has nothing to do with the work that I want to do in the future that I see in the municipality that I live in. And we started chatting. And then he says, come and sit down here for a minute. So I sat at his kitchen table and then we chatted. And I started with the educational piece, right? And not that I shouldn't be feared. There's nothing to fear about me. And we had a conversation over an hour. And when we hit the hour point, he goes, you've been here an hour. Your car is still running? <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, it is. I didn't even think, I didn't shut it off. I didn't think I would be here very long. And I left that house and he said to me, you are amazing. You're awesome. He said, I've learned a lot in the last little bit we talked. He said, I'm going to tell you what, I am going to vote for you, but that sign's got to stay in my front lawn because of the relationship I have with the incumbent. No problem. I said, I respect that. Appreciate your time. And as I went forward, that, like I said, empowered me to have those difficult conversations. Like I was kicked off some front yards because the incumbent had deep relationships with residents in our community. Right. And phone calls like, well, you're a native. I hear that all the first nations and the Métis people are going to come and take our shorelines if we elect you. And I said, we can't do that. It's not something that you can do as a first nations mayor or as a mayor or as a first nations. And so I found myself really educating people. And I got this one funny phone call. And this gentleman who I knew was a lawyer said to me, well, I understand if we elect you, you're going to turn us into a reserve. And I said, aren't you a lawyer? And he said, yes, I am. I said, I would think that after studying law, you would know that I can't do that. (laughs) And then I joked and I said, but if I made everybody tax free, would that help? And we laughed (laughs) and joked about it, right? But to your second part of your question, um, it means so much to me learning that I am the first First Nations woman in Ontario to be elected as a mayor because learning that added the responsibility of getting it right. 
I had to get it. I have to get it right. I had to get it right in those first few years for all those naysayers and all those doubters in the community. And I had to get it right, not only for our taxpayers that we're watching very closely, but every one of our Indigenous youth, our Indigenous leaders, and non-Indigenous leaders from neighbouring municipalities, right? So there was that added responsibility to get it right, to demonstrate that it's okay to have Indigenous people on our municipal councils, and specifically a status Indian, if you will, because it's not about turning us into a reserve, taking over land. That's not what it's about. It's about giving back to our community and putting that into perspective. But it also adds an expectation to me to bring the two worlds together. And when I was elected president of Noman, and might remember some of the comments in the room that I'm going to vote for Wendy, because I was up against a long-term incumbent my first time in 2017, um, running for president of Noma. And the comments were, she'll be able to help us bridge our relationships with the First Nations. And I started to hear that and I was like, whew, it's a huge expectation. And that expectation still exists to some degree. And I have been working on this, but I single-handedly can't reconcile two worlds that have been extremely separated by history, by law, by the Indian Act, oppression, distrust, lack of relationship. I can't single-handedly do that. But what I can do is advise, guide, give ideas, relax some fears, calm the fear or the misunderstandings or the unknown and the hesitation to, to bridge those relationships. And, you know, to help people understand that your neighboring First Nations are not looking to take over. So that's what I've been able to do. And as the president of NOMA, I'm on the Associations for the Municipalities of Ontario, and I'm on that executive. So at that level at the province, we developed an Indigenous Relations Task Force for the province. So I chair that task force. And so happy to say that now there's other First Nations people on that task force too, who are not necessarily elected officials, but they're working for municipalities in that space of a liaison or a guide or an advisor. And we now have a lot of stories of municipalities and leaders who have taken the initiative to make those relationships and Sulaco being one of them, right, Anne? Um, and more in, in the province of Ontario. So I've, I still have that expectation to bring the worlds together, but I think that I've matured and grown to understand what that expectation is. And so it's still a bit of an extra weight on our shoulders as First Nations people. We have to prove ourselves more than a non-Indigenous person elected in a municipal council. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself too, Wendy, but I know you really well and I think you've done an amazing job, especially the five years I was working with you in Noma, the work that you did and you're just tireless, I would say. Tell us a little bit about small town Northern Ontario is a really long distance from provincial headquarters in Toronto. So Speak a little bit about what the challenges are of advocating for the communities in Northwestern Ontario. How do you stay on the radar of Southern Ontario when it's such a large province and you're so far away? 
Yeah, you know what, Anne, like you have a clear understanding of the distance, right? And yeah. and the remoteness of a lot of our municipalities in northwestern Ontario and the geography that we're hours apart from each other. And Doug and I used to say the former mayor of Sioux Lookout when we were in Toronto, flip the map over. There's a whole landmass on the other side. And it's an everyday endeavor. So every call I'm on, every board I'm on, you have to have a voice. You can't sit back and just listen. You need to speak up. And I've had a voice all of my life. I was always the advocate for the underdog, always the the one challenging the bullies in the schoolyard, et cetera, et cetera. So when I go to these meetings, we find ourselves on a journey we didn't expect, right? So if you would have asked me like 20 years ago, whenever, if I would be the mayor and at the provincial level, I would have laughed and said, there's no way, like, come on. But here I am, I'm on this journey and we're, we, I, I totally believe we end up where we're supposed to be. So when I'm in meetings with government or my colleagues in Southern part of Ontario, I, there's always a couple of lines we use. One size doesn't fit all. And we say it over and over again. And then there's this other piece, and I love this because someone told me this one time and I didn't know this. So I explained to when we're having a conversation about something, an issue, a bill, whatever that might be, or a decision of what to advocate for, I always remind my colleagues, remind provincial government, the tip of Northwestern Ontario, the municipalities I represent, is Kenora, the border of Manitoba. If you drive from Kenora, Ontario to Toronto, it's about 1,850 kilometers. If you start in Kenora, Ontario, and you drive 1,850 kilometers west, you're in Golden, BC. And people just stop and they kind of go, huh? I said, that's right. Four provinces, three time zones, four planning acts. <laughs> yeah. And I give them that perspective and it's almost shock value because then they're like, holy crap. And I say to them, don't just fly to Thunder Bay. Don't just fly to Kenora. And a lot of times what ministers do is they fly to Winnipeg and drive to Kenora or to the Western part of our communities. Drive the highway. Just once drive the highway. And, and so I'm on AMO, I'm on MPAC, I'm on the Fire Safety Council of Ontario. There's so many opportunities of the different boards that I sit on to educate people from the southern part of the province just how far northwestern Ontario is. And I even bring that down to another level. When we're having meetings, I'm the chair of the Northern Ontario Transportation Task Force, the co-chair. I have to remind government and staff, there's a difference between northeastern Ontario and northwestern Ontario, because northeastern Ontario is two hours from Toronto, four mm -hmm. hours from Toronto. Mm -hmm. It's not 18 hours from Toronto. And so we keep using those shock values to remind people how far this, how far we are and how big this province is. And unfortunately, we don't have the density and the populations to affect votes and to have a clear effect on government. Um, when it comes to campaigning and it comes to being the season, when it comes to developing and forming government, we don't have the population, but we have the landmass. So we always have to remind the government and other communities, we have the majority of the landmass and our natural resources. So all of those little things 
are a continuous challenge to advocate for Northwestern Ontario and more importantly, to keep us on the radar. Some really powerful perspectives there. Very different, I think. Uh, very informative about the province in ways that we don't typically think about in Southern Ontario, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. And we have to stay on the radar in a kind way. We have to continue to be giving that message. So I know how to turn it up and I know how to turn it down. And it's funny because whenever we're meeting with government or something and we're, the meeting's ended and I'll put my hand up and the Minister of Municipal Affairs or somebody would say, I knew we weren't done till Mayor Landry spoke. <laughs> <laughs> I always have to add that piece any uh, way I can in our meetings. I do plan up too, Wendy. Here in Alberta, everything's fairly close. And I remember somebody asking why I said, well, haven't you been to Jasper? And they said, oh, no, it's six hours. And I said, six hours. When I lived in Northwestern <laughs> Ontario, we did that for a meeting. We'd go to Kenora and back. That was six hours. You know? I know. And it's so funny because in Northwestern Ontario, like I had six kids, five played hockey, right? We drove to Kenora seven hours for a hockey tournament. We drive to Minnesota. We don't, there's no Costco in Northwestern Ontario. So everybody drives to either Winnipeg eight hours or Duluth five, four hours to go, just to go shopping. (laughs) Uh, Let's take a step back now and talk about your advocacy work for diversity and inclusion in local government. How do you think we can improve diversity, equity, and inclusion and achieve better representation on municipal councils. You know, and this DE&I piece, I'm so excited because it's everywhere, right? It's it's not just in local government or provincial government, it's everywhere that to recognize the importance of having diverse voices at the table, I think is something that's happening. It's a movement that's happening that is so exciting. With the demographics on our municipal councils, it's still kind of hard to educate the importance sometimes of the older age group of men, predominantly white men, of why that is important to have those voices at the table. And it's something that I advocate for all the time and I'm recruiting for all the time in much different spaces. But specifically with municipal councils, you know, it's about time right? It's about time and having the time to to be on municipal council. So I want to tell you a good news story. We had a vacancy come up on our council a couple of years back when one of our retired councillors sold his property and didn't realize that that meant he couldn't be on council anymore because he didn't own property mm-hmm. in the municipality. So I had been out talking to all these young moms that come to the rec centre, people that I know that are my kids' age, that have kids, and say, you know, you'd be really good on council. You should really think about it. They're active in the community. They're volunteering. They're on the school committees. They're on all these committees. And so I'd be advocating to them, come to council. Come check it out. So anyway, we had this vacancy. It went out for application and interviews. And I had managed to convince this mom of four, under 40, to come on out. And she did. And she owns her own business, a financial advisor, and just a brilliant young woman. And she joined our council that year. And I tell you, what a breath of fresh air. It is just so amazing in the way she asks questions, in the way that she brings a perspective that I have forgotten about sometimes because my kids are adult children and gone, right? A perspective of, I don't want to call it naivety, but that unknown world of why we do things. So sometimes the question is, 
can someone explain to me why we have to talk, why we're doing this or what's the concern mm. here? And it's just such a different mindset to learn, but it is such a great breath of fresh air. And so then she was appointed to council and then we had an election, just this past election. And she was really struggling. She said, I don't know if I'm going to run. It's really a lot of time. It's busy. I got four little kids. And I said, please tell me whatever you need, I'll support you. I need to keep you on council. Council needs you. The municipality needs you. Let me know what you need. I'll do anything you need to help you stay on council. And we had a really great conversation and her husband's super supportive. So she ran. And then we didn't have an election in our municipality except for her ward. We're like, oh, man. <laughs> a, a woman ran against her. And I then found that I had to... Um, not so much mentor her, but support her in just how nasty campaigning can oh. be. Because she was like, oh, my God, I didn't realize this was such a competitive, nasty world. Like she said, I wish all the best to either one of us. If she wins, she wins. If I do, I do. And so it was, you know, seeing the eyes through her was, uh, you know, I had to guide her and say, yep, that's here's what happened to me. I never faced racism till I ran. And yes, it can get nasty, even our small little wee communities. But the importance is that lens, right? So, you know, there's now Cheryl Fort. She's the mayor of Horn Payne, second First Nations woman to be elected in the province of Ontario. We now have Gaetan, who's a councillor in Hearst. We have Desmond, who's a councillor down near Cochrane. The Indigenous people getting elected on council is growing and it's amazing because it brings a different lens. Just like the three of us on this call, we all have different perspectives based on our environment, based on our education, based on our learnings, our experiences. It's the same on council. We need to have diversity around the table. Otherwise we don't grow, we don't learn, and we don't fully serve our, our communities in the best way possible, due diligently, if we don't have diverse opinions, diverse lenses, and diverse people. I couldn't agree more, Wendy. That's such great advice. You've been involved in a lot of ad advocacy work, and as I'm listening to you, I'm wondering when you ever sleep or if you do, <laughs> and a lot of work in Indigenous communities. So what can municipalities genuinely do to participate in reconciliation? Such an important question, Anne, thank you. Reconciliation, you know, people say to me, well, I wasn't part of the sending kids to residential school. Why do I have to accept this responsibility? Or this all happened a hundred years ago. Why do we have to do anything about it? It's, it's, a, it's a joint responsibility on indigenous people and non-indigenous people, Canadians in general, to work together on the reconciliation. And let's talk about that word for a quick second, reconciliation. Reconciliation means to reconcile, which indicates or assumes that there was once a good relationship, hmm. which isn't the truth. So is it conciliation or is it reconciliation? Just food for thought. Anyway, mm -hmm. but what we can do for to bring municipalities and our First Nations I speak First Nations specifically because those are additional communities that 
our neighboring to our municipalities, right? Métis communities in Ontario are in our municipalities. They have historical land, but they are in our municipalities. But when we talk about reconciliation, we talk about the treaties. We talk about the treaties that our forefathers signed on both sides, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and that the fact that those treaties were never upheld. And it is the responsibility of Canadians as a whole to participate in in reconciliation. And the key piece of reconciliation is action. So people say, oh, I never knew that about our history. I never knew about residential schools. I never, okay, but now you know. So now you know. So what are you going to do about it? And it's like, okay, you didn't know what you didn't know, but now you know. So what are you going to do about it? No different than any other issue that comes to municipal council. To say, oh, I didn't know about it isn't good enough. You know about it now with the uh, discovered graves. And I say discovered graves as opposed to uncovered graves because discovered graves is something revealed or exposed that, you know, that were always there. As First Nations people, we knew there was bodies buried. We've been told that. But, you know, a gift from those people that didn't survive and were buried in the residential schools you know, are bringing to light and smacking Canadians in the forehead. This is reality. This is proof of what we've been saying all along. So with municipalities, it's, you know, to work on reconciliation is to go back to that relationship. Like I talked about it, the term reconciliation indicates that you had a good relationship at one time. That wasn't the case. We know that now. So municipalities And First Nations are working on the same things. We're trying to sustain our communities. We're trying to keep our youth. We're trying to grow our communities. We're trying to bring in economic development opportunities. All of those things that we deal with on municipalities, First Nations leaders and our First Nations are working on the same things. And there's strength in numbers. And if I have a neighboring neighboring First Nation, doesn't it make sense to do things together? It just makes sense. So what municipalities need to do, should do, and should be doing is developing those relationships. And I'll go back to one of the other questions you asked me earlier. It's not my responsibility as a First Nations person or any of us First Nations to build relationships or to tell municipalities how to do this or what to do. We can guide, we can advise, but there has to be action. So municipalities, they need to reach out, reach out phone a chief, go for coffee, get to know each other, develop the level of trust, develop the level of understanding each other in the same way you would a friend. Have friends before you need friends because you do not want to go to a First Nations when you need the duty to consult piece to be done on an infrastructure project or a project in your municipality because that is set up for failure right off the top. But if you have a relationship, then you can have a discussion of what that looks like and how we care about the environment and municipalities the same way First Nations people do. We are caretakers of the land. That's our teachings as First Nations people. But we're not opposed to development. We want to be part of it. We want to be on the receiving end of it as well. We've been oppressed for so long. Our communities, we were, that we were made to be reliant on the federal government and social services. We've never benefited from the natural resources and the monies and the revenue that Canada and Ontario have benefited from. And so I, we need I, to participate in that. 
I remembered Clifford Ball, chief of Lac Sul First Nation, when I was in Sioux Lookout. He said something to me, you know, in a joking manner, but it really stuck with me. And he said, you're trying to rush us down the aisle and we're only on our first date. And Great. Yeah. I've always thought about that. And the relationship piece is so important. It's so critical. It really is. And and I don't know why people think it's any different than me and you becoming friends because you're the CAO of Sioux Lookout and I'm in municipal politics. We want to get to know each other. We want to have a friendship. You know, we we trust each other. We can talk to each other. Why is that any different when you're talking about going and becoming friends with your neighbors? That's not a municipality, but a First Nation. And it's that installation of fear over the years. Now, remember, in the textbooks, we were referred to as savages, right? And that ethnocentric attitude that the European culture, the non-Indigenous culture, is better off or better than the Indigenous culture, right? We have to get rid of that mindset and get rid of that attitude because with that and the intention of the Canadian government in the day was to instill fear and to was to kill the Indian in the child. That's, that's written down. So there's been a level of fear. And now in this environment, a level of fear to offend, fear to not get it right. Yeah. All of those fears are added now too in this environment, right? But we got to be brave and we got to be courageous and we got to take that step to literally cross the road, visit your neighbors, build a relationship, then comes trust, then comes friendship, and then comes the joint and collaborative work that needs to be done in order to survive. Wow, that's perfect. You've just laid out the roadmap there, Wendy. That's such important work that you're doing and such important conversations that we're having. Now, I have to ask, with your passion for politics, have you ever considered running for provincial or federal office? I get to ask this so much, and especially when there's another election coming along, right? And, you know, Susan, I get it. I tick a lot of boxes. I'm a woman. I'm First Nations. I got a high profile. I got tons of relationships across this province. You got a big voice. I got a big voice. <laughs> but that big voice would get me in trouble. <laughs> I, like to call uh, it, I like to call it, Wendy, positive disruptor. Yes, thank you. So I have met with different leaders with different parties at different times to have the conversation. And I'll be honest, no different than than my work. If I'm working for someone, I got to work for a boss or a director or a manager that's going to appreciate my voice and that's going to appreciate what I bring to the table and who's going to appreciate having the hard conversations that I think need to be had without punishing me or without silencing me. As a municipal mayor, I don't carry a color. I don't, you know, whatever colors those are, blue, red, orange, whatever. I don't carry a color as a municipal leader. I have to play nice in the sandbox with all parties and whoever's in government. And, you know, we like collaborative relationships. So here's the challenge for me in my thinking. If I run for provincial politics, and maybe it's the party that's opposite to the government that's in government right now, what, what am I doing to my relationships on behalf of NOMA to right. the government that's in the government of the day? Right. If I go and run for the opposition, for example, and I don't have a big ego, 
I don't need that. I mean, it's always nice that they come and ask you. I get why though, but I don't need that recognition or that level of, I want to say power, but I don't know that that's the right word. In order to do what I'm doing, I think I, I do Northwestern Ontario a bigger favor by having a voice that is within my control Yes. at a provincial level. If I pick a color, I have to, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but I have to toe the party line to some degree. And I'm not saying that I'll never go there. I'm saying right now in my gut, it tells me not that's not the place for me. And I've sat down, like I said, with leaders that have come to see me to sit down and talk about how I could take my voice to the next level and I could do great things and all of that. And I have yet to meet a leader that I asked the question to, okay, I'm elected. I'm in your party. I'm representing this riding in your government. But all of a sudden you're doing crazy things. The government's doing crazy things. And I'm going, wait, what? And I walk in your office and I go, what the heck are we doing? And challenge the thinking or whatever the direction we're going. And I say, am I out? <laughs> Get in the back seat. <laughs> Get in the back seat. You know, what, what happens when I want to speak my mind. And I have yet to get the answer that I think in my gut that I'm looking for in that my expressions of advocacy and passion that comes from born and raised in Northwestern Ontario isn't going to get me into trouble and then do a disservice to this area. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does. That, that's a great answer too. There's a saying, Wendy, if you want something done, ask a busy person. And as we've heard through this talk, you are extremely busy. So before we wrap up, I just need to ask you this. With all the boards, municipal work, provincial work, full-time job, kids, husband, on your plate, what could you offer us about how you find a little bit of work-life balance and what do you encourage? And tell us a little bit about encouraging young people to think about local government. Such a good question. And people ask me this all the time. Do you sleep? I think you said that earlier. And I do. And I sleep well. <laughs> I do. I sleep really well. Because when I first got elected into municipal politics, my dad said to me, remember where you come from. Keep your feet on the ground and, and value those seven teachings. Always speak truth, always be honest, and you'll never have to remember what you said because the honesty stays in your head, but don't lose your passion. And I've been in official elected politics since 2010 now, and that's why I can sleep at night because I strongly believe that I've done my family proud, I've done my municipality proud, I've done our region proud, and I've done my parents proud that I haven't wavered from that those ground keeping teachings right but you're right I do get asked to be on so many different boards and at the same time maintain my, my commitment and my my work in the municipality right and my family sorry I didn't mean to put them at a different <laughs> level but my kids were still living at home when I was elected to politics and they supported me I have an amazing supportive husband who is always there. We work together. We're a true team. We have this, those big desk calendars on the wall, who had to be where, when, what was for supper that day. So that when we went grocery shopping, we knew what we were buying or the kids knew what we were having for dinner. It was just very organizational. Um, 
way of doing things. And I wasn't on as many boards then as I am now, but now I'm in a different place in my life. All my children are grown and gone. They're living their lives. One's in BC, one's in Sault Ste. Marie, one's in Nipigon. They're all over. So we have a different way of connecting and we travel differently. And virtual has given me an opportunity to still stay connected, attend meetings without having to have to travel the entire province. And I was scared of that after COVID because COVID, so you can, Anne knows this well, if I had to be in Thunder Bay for a NOMA board meeting and then be in Toronto for an AMO board meeting and then be in Peterborough for our darling, another community for an MPAC meeting or be, the travel stopped me from being everywhere. Virtually, introducing virtual meetings into the, my life actually was thumbs up for sure because I could click off a meeting with Ann Mitchell and then go grab a coffee and come back and click on a meeting with Susan and click on a meeting with my MPAC board and click. It offered that, that I started to get scared when the world got back to normal that <laughs> I wasn't going to be able to handle it because it's the travel that's exhausting. Yeah. In all honesty, I remember waking and plus don't forget, I work full time for Enbridge. So my travel in my work with Enbridge allowed me to be in different places too. So sometimes I woke up in a hotel and didn't know where I was. I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. But the work-life balance is so important in my marriage and my personal life that if you want to find me between May long weekend and November, the first weekend in November, you have to come to the bush. I have no cell phone service there. I have no internet. I get up in the morning. I drive into Nipigon. I have an office in Nipigon. I do my meetings, but my out of office clicks on about 5 p.m. And I go back to the bush. We'll have dinner and we'll spend our evening fishing. And then we sit by the fire. In the fall, we do hunting. Um, the last two years, I managed to shoot my first moose this year and last year in my entire life. And those are the kind of things that I remain committed to and our annual vacation time between Christmas and the first two weeks of January, where municipal world is quiet. My professional world is quiet. Boards are quiet for those first couple of weeks. I take that time to go and shut down. Um, and that is super important. And I invested in a hot tub a long time ago when I really need to go there. <laughs> so that's the things that I do to make sure that my evenings or somewhat quiet saying that I was on a board meeting till eight o'clock last night, but my husband's retired now. So now we're at a different point. How do we manage to do things together when he's retired and I'm at the busiest time of my life? So he's really good. He'll text me and say, supper's ready, <laughs> which has been a different world for me the last couple of weeks because he's retired and he's gone golfing in Arizona for a few weeks now <laughs> and I'm home working. So I have to make sure that I'm taking that time off for myself when nobody's here to remind me to take the time off for myself. And what I tell young people and trying to encourage them to come is only bite off as much as you can chew, chew in the beginning. You don't have to do the boards that I'm doing. You don't have to do all of that. To be on municipal council, you have to read your package. You have to stay in tuned with the community and, you, and your administration keeps you top notch. Rely on them. As your life changes, you can decide which boards you want to go to, which conferences you want to go to that, that you know, can fit into your private and personal and family life. But don't feel obligated to take boards. Don't feel obligated to go to conferences. 
I have one counselor on my on my council who doesn't travel at all, has no been there for 20 something years, has no interest in going to conferences, has no interest going to all of this stuff, wants to do the community work and that's it. And that's great. But I need her at the table for what she brings to the table. And so I say that to young people, you only have to do this bit. You can do more as you find time and get comfortable with it. You don't have to do all of it right now. What I try to sell young people on when I'm trying to recruit them to come to municipal council, because I often say, I am so not a good example, but you don't have to do what I'm doing. In the same way I tell my kids when they started driving, do not pick up any of my driving habits because I am not a driving instructor. <laughs> I think sometimes too, we learn very carefully what, when, and especially when we get a bit older, Wendy, we have to learn what to say no to. And that's mm -hmm. a pretty critical piece, I find. Yeah, and I just reviewed that last week. And because I was asked to join the DM, which I would love to. I love all of this advocacy work and learning from other people and meeting people from across Canada. And I honestly said to the president of FCM, I said, I would love to. But I just don't have the capacity right now because I don't want to be that person that said yes and never shows up. I refuse to be that person. So what I did say was in the Northern space, in the indigenous space, on those committees that on the DE and I space on those committees, if you feel there's something coming up that I can add something to give me a call, happy to join a meeting, happy to give some advice and my input, but I can't commit to being on the board. And that's what I've done. But I've also become more active in my First Nation in developing policy and helping them grow in different ways. So where I said no to one, I said yes to another. But you know what? It's important locally for me to be involved. Such great insights. Thank you so much for joining us today, Wendy. It was really so wonderful speaking with you and hearing about your experiences and your insights and whichever path you decide in the future, we wish you all the best. I don't Somebody asked me now, your husband's retired. When are you retiring? I'm like, oh, I'm not even sure I ever really will. And now my <laughs> husband has started. Oh, it's not that he started. He's always kind of said that. He goes, yeah, I don't know if she'll ever really retire. There's just too much passion there to do good things and to be a voice and, and to affect change and be part of that. Right. And so doing all that. Yeah. Wendy, so Wendy, it's so true. Mine's retired and I'm still working full out, flat out. And I'm quite happy about that. Thank you so much, Wendy. Your work is so inspiring and we're so grateful for the opportunity for you to share your story with our listeners. You know what? Thank you so much for thinking of me for this. I enjoy it. I enjoy people. I'm an extra extrovert, so I love these opportunities. So I appreciate you thinking about me too. Thank you very much, Chimigwich. Thanks for joining us in the Local Gov Cafe. If you enjoyed this episode, Please take a minute to share on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll join us next time as we welcome our next guest. You won't want to miss it.